Section 24 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 5, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary, Chapter 6, Part 1. Queen Mary and her spouse went to Basing House the morning after their marriage, and were splendidly entertained there by the Lord Treasurer Paulet, Marquess of Winchester. They finally left Winchester within a week of the marriage, and went to Windsor Castle, where a grand festival of the Garter was held on Sunday, August 5th, in celebration of the admission of King Philip to the Order. The following Tuesday was devoted to a species of hunting, little practiced in England. Toils were raised in Windsor Forest, four miles in length, and a great number of deer slaughtered. The Queen and her spouse removed to Richmond Palace, August the 9th, and stayed there till the twenty-seventh when they embarked on the thames and rode in great pomp to southwark where they landed at gardiner's palace and passing through southwark park to suffolk place once the pleasant residence of mary tudor and charles brandon duke of suffolk they sojourned there for the night at noon next day they crossed london bridge on horseback attended by a stately retinue of english nobles and spanish grandees they were received in the city with the usual display of pageantry, among which the circumstance most noted was that a figure representing Henry the Eighth held a book, as if an act of presentation to the queen, on which was inscribed, Werbum Dei. The queen was offended, and the words were obliterated so hastily, with a painting brush, that the fingers of the figure were wiped out with them. Philip brought over a quantity of bullion, sufficient to fill ninety-seven chests, each chest being a yard and a quarter long. This treasure was piled on twenty carts. It was displayed with some ostentation on this occasion in its progress to the tower to be coined. The citizens were much pleased with this replenishment of the currency, so dreadfully exhausted and debased by Henry the Eighth and the regencies of his son. The queen, after holding her court at Whitehall, dismissed for a time the crowds of English nobility and gentry, who had assembled there, from all parts of the country, to celebrate her marriage. It was the death of the Duke of Norfolk, which interrupted the nuptial festivities, since Mary ordered a court mourning for him, because, as Halen, she loved him entirely. On occasion of this morning she retired to Hampton Court, where she remained for some time in profound retirement with her husband. Here an important change took place in the customs of English royalty, which gave mortal offence to the people. Formerly, murmured the populace, the gates of the palace where the royal family resided were set open all day long, and our princes lived in public, but since the Spanish wedlock, Hampton Court gates are closed, and every man must give an account of his errand before entering. It is a point of no little difficulty to ascertain the precise time when Queen Mary was reconciled to her sister, since the whole tenor of the facts, and the chronological arrangement in which they are cast by general history, are totally at variance. The difficulty seems to have arisen from Fox's assertion, that Elizabeth continued in hard durance, a year and a half longer than she really did, Recent discoveries indubitably prove that Mary permitted her sister to appear in state at the festivities of the ensuing Christmas of 1554. It is extremely probable that such a step was taken previously to the private reconciliation of the royal sisters. We therefore venture to suggest 
that the following dialogue took place between queen mary and the princess elizabeth at hampton court in the autumn of fifteen fifty four instead of the spring of fifteen fifty five queen mary received the princess elizabeth who had been brought under a strong guard from woodstock in her bedchamber at hampton court at ten o'clock at night when the princess entered the queen's presence she fell on her knees and protested with streaming eyes and in earnest language her truth and loyalty to her sovereign majesty let whosoever assert the contrary queen mary replied somewhat sharply you will not confess your offence i see but rather stand stoutly on your truth i pray god your truth may become manifest if it is not said the princess i will look for neither favour nor pardon at your majesty's hands well then said the queen you stand so stiffly on your truth belike you have been wrongly punished i must not say so to your majesty replied elizabeth but you will report so to others it seemeth rejoined mary no and please your majesty replied the princess i have borne and must bear the burden thereof but i humbly beseech your grace's good opinion of me as i am and ever have been your majesty's true subject the queen turned away with a half soliloquy in spanish uttering audibly god knoweth if the intercepted correspondence between elizabeth and the french ambassador was at that moment in mary's thoughts she could scarcely say less the story goes that king philip had interceded for elizabeth that he caused her to be sent for that she might partake the marriage festivities and that he was during this interview hidden behind the tapestry to prevent his wife's harsh treatment of her sister but those who know how eagerly the spanish ambassador sought elizabeth's life the preceding spring will find some difficulty in believing that philip was a better friend to her than the queen the interview terminated amicably between the sisters for the queen put on elizabeth's finger a costly ring as a pledge of amity and letty adds that she said impressively whether you be guilty or innocent i forgive you the queen had given her a ring at her accession as a token to recall their love if elizabeth ever stood in danger elizabeth had sent it to her in the hour of deep distress at whitehall mary had probably retained it till this instant the queen recommended sir thomas pope to her sister as comptroller of her household she mentioned him as a person of humanity prudence and altogether of such qualities as would render her home pleasant and happy and the sequel proved that the queen really placed about her sister no jailer but a man of honour and good feelings whenever this celebrated interview took place it is certain that although most trying circumstances afterwards occurred owing to elizabeth's own prudence in listening to fortune-tellers and moreover two or three dangerous plots were concocted among her servants yet she never lost the privilege of access to her sister or was again put under durance the meeting of mary's third parliament november eleventh drew her from her autumnal retirement to her palace of whitehall her procession to open it was an equestrian one of peculiar splendor king philip rode by her side wearing his beret cap and black velvet doublet a sword of state was borne before each in token of their independent sovereignties the queen was mounted on a trained courser whose ample chest was decorated with rosettes and bands of gems while a housing of cloth of gold descended below the saddle-step 
the attitude of her equestrian portraits proves that she rode on the benchside saddle although catherine de medici had already introduced the pommeled one now in use she wore a small coif a band of the most costly jewels passed over her head and clasped under the chin the spanish mantilla veil hung in broad lappets from the crown of her head to her waist her dress opened from the throat to the chest with a small ruff called a partlet it showed a carcanet of jewels round the throat connected with a splendid auche and pear pearl fastened on the chest the sleeves slashed and moderately full towards the elbow were gathered at the wrist into ruffles and jewelled bracelets the corsage of the dress tight and tapering was girt at the waist with a cordeliere of gems the skirt of the robe was open from the waist but closed at pleasure by aglets or clasps studded with jewels such was the riding dress of ladies of rank before the monstrous farthingale was introduced which was worn even on horseback the queen was extremely urgent with her parliament to restore the lands which had been seized by her father from the church and distributed among the partisans of his measures had the english parliaments been as firm in the defence of the protestant faith and of the lives of their fellow-creatures as they were of these ill-gotten goods the annals of the first queen regnant would have been clear of all stain of persecution but the reckless facility with which they passed laws for burning their protestant fellow-subjects forms a strong contrast to their earnestness when a hint glanced against the mammon they really worshipped many struck their hands on their swords affirming with oaths that they would never part with their abbey lands while they could wield a weapon which resolution being told to the queen she said she must content herself with setting them a good example by devoting the lands she found in possession of the crown to the support of learning and the relief of the most destitute poor her council represented that if she gave these revenues away she could not support the splendor of her crown she replied that she preferred the peace of her conscience to ten such crowns as england mary knew that cardinal pole was on his way to england with authority from pope julius to reconcile the country to the see of rome he likewise brought a bull confirming these worshippers of their own interest in possession of their spoils she had sent her trusty knight sir edward hastings who was the cardinal's nephew as his escort to england accompanied by lord paget sir william cecil afterwards lord burley attached himself as a volunteer agent on this mission of inviting the papal supremacy into this country thus affording an additional instance of the many furnished by history that the leaders of persecutions had been almost invariably renegades but the ardent aspirations of this man of many religions for office were utterly slighted by queen mary for which he bore her memory a burning grudge the queen bestowed on cardinal pole every mark of honor on his arrival in england he came by water from gravesend and fixing the large silver cross emblem of his legantine authority in the prow of his state barge its progress was surveyed with mixed emotions by the citizens who lined the banks of the thames as he was rowed to whitehall bishop gardiner received him at the water-gate king philip at the principal entrance and the queen herself at the head of the stairs festivities on a grand scale succeeded his arrival a tournament was held the last in england which was attended by royal and noble foreigners it was published in the queen's presence chamber to take place november twenty fifth fifteen fifty four 
her majesty distributed the prizes with her own hand and king philip was one of the combatants the first prize mary gave was for the best armor and the most gallant entry king philip was pronounced only second best in this case and the queen bestowed her prize of a rich auche on don frederick de toledo the candidates for the sword prize are thus described sir george howard brother to the unfortunate queen catherine howard fought very well don adrian garcias better and sir john parrot best of all and to him the queen gave in reward a ring set with a fine diamond public report insisted that sir john parrot was the queen's half-brother he was a knight of gigantic stature and bore a strong resemblance to henry the eighth he was a noted character in the reign of elizabeth at the pike in rank thomas percy afterwards restored by queen mary as seventh earl of northumberland acquitted himself right valiantly don carlo de sanguine with better fortune but don Rui gomez best of all and to him the queen's majesty gave a ring the last course was a tourney with the foil lord william howard the high admiral fought with high commendation the marquess of torre maiore exceeded him but king philip surpassed all to whom queen mary gave nothing loath the prize of a diamond ring the queen was extremely ill on the day she had appointed to introduce the mission of cardinal pole to parliament and as she could not go as usual to westminster she was forced to take the privileges of an invalid and convene her peers and commons in her great presence chamber at the palace of whitehall here she was carried to her throne attended by all her ladies king philip was seated under the same canopy but at the queen's left hand a seat of dignity was placed for the cardinal at the queen's right hand but at a due distance from the royal canopy the lord chancellor gardiner commenced the business of the day with this quaint address my lords of the upper house and my masters of the nether house here present the right reverend father in god my lord cardinal pole legate a la terre is come from the apostolic see of rome as ambassador to the king and queen's majesties upon one of the weightiest causes that ever happened in this realm which ambassade their majesty's pleasure is to be signified by his own mouth you giving attentive and inclinable ear to his grace who is now ready to declare the same cardinal pole then stood up and in a speech of considerable length and eloquence recapitulated his own sufferings in exile and with the ingenuity of a great barrister pleading a cause uttered everything that could be urged in favor of the roman catholic side of the question he mentioned the queen with emotion declaring the time was when on her grace's part there was nothing but despair for numbers conspired against her and policies devised to destroy her right yet she a virgin helpless and unarmed prevailed and had the victory and her faith like a lamp assaulted by adverse winds through a dark and stormy night yet kept a light to the hopes of many and now shed a bright radiance in the course of the speech the cardinal hinted that he had the power from pope julius the third to absolve the english without previous restitution of the church lands distributed by henry the eighth the immediate consequence of this understanding was that the houses of parliament by general consent prepared a petition to the throne praying for reconciliation with the see of rome the next morning the queen 
her ladies king philip and the cardinal took their places as before when the peers and commons led by gardiner again entered the presence chamber and presented the petition of parliament to the royal pair philip and mary rose and doing reverence to the cardinal delivered this petition to him who received it with glad emotion at their hands he delivered a few words of thanks to god and then ordered his commission from the pope to be read aloud this ended the peers and commons fell on their knees and the cardinal pronounced solemnly his absolution and benediction the whole assembly then followed the queen and her spouse to st stephen's chapel where te deum was sung which ended the ceremony queen mary was struck with a relapse of illness during the solemnity so agitating was it to her she however trusted that her indisposition was owing to her situation which promised she persuaded herself an heir to her crown her health rallied sufficiently to permit her appearance at the christmas festival which was kept with more than usual splendor on account of her marriage and the reconciliation to rome just at this time the queen expressed her pity for sir john cheek but did not pardon him of her own accord she referred this case to gardiner his offence was not a small one for he had written a letter from the council which branded the queen with illegitimacy in the coarsest terms and tauntingly advised her to offer her homage to queen jane it was the office of sir william cecil to write all letters of counsel but he shifted this on poor sir john cheek with a dexterity on which he afterwards greatly plumed himself in one of sir john cheek's supplicatory letters to gardiner from padua dated december fifteen forty four he makes use of these words i hear queen mary's noble highness pitying the extreme state of my case hath referred unto your lordship to take order in my matters after what sort your lordship listeth therefore all now lieth in your hand that either of this endless misery you may ease me or else cast me into extreme beggary i envy not others to whom the queen's grace was merciful but i crave the same mercy in a like cause the festivities on christmas eve were peculiarly splendid here it was evident that a degree of reconciliation between the queen and her sister elizabeth had taken place for the princess was not only permitted to join in them but to take her place at the banquet as the heir presumptive of the realm the great hall of the palace was lighted with a thousand lamps of various colors artificially disposed here queen mary her husband and a splendid assembly of english flemish and spanish nobles supped the princess elizabeth sat at the same table with her sister next the royal canopy called by the chronicler the cloth of estate elizabeth was likewise present at the grand tourney that took place five days afterwards according to the proclamation the queen had made on the arrival of the prince of savoy the earl of devonshire had been released from fotheringay castle and was introduced at court with the honors due to his rank at these christmas festivities he expressed a wish to travel that he might improve his mind and was offered by the queen an honorable introduction to the emperor's court his flight from the battle of charing cross conduct unheard of in the annals of his race perhaps made his residence at the english court unpleasant to him want of physical courage being deemed a greater disgrace than if he had committed as many murders and treasons as his great uncle richard the third as the bridal festivities of queen mary had been postponed to the christmas season great magnificence was expected on the occasion 
yet it was the queen's desire that they should be conducted with a regard to economy which was perfectly disgusting to the functionaries whose offices were to arrange the amusements of the court sir thomas carden who had seen the spoils of many a goodly abbey tossed to him as funds for finding his puppets was indignant at the change of times and remonstrated through sir henry jerringham that he had already shown all his novelties to king philip and wanted new properties upon which sir henry penned under the queen's direction the following curious epistle wherein her majesty plainly intimated her desire that something elegant should be furnished forth for the entertainment of king philip without any further drain on the royal purse mr carden i have declared to the queen's highness that you have no other mass than such as has been showed already before the king's highness and for that he hath seen many fair and rich beyond the seas you think it not honourable but that he should see the like here her highness thinks your consideration very good notwithstanding she has commanded me to write to you saying to me she knows right well you can make a shift for need requiring you to do so and you shall deserve great thanks at her highness's hands and if you lack stuff you may have some here at hand i told her you lacked nothing but time but she trusted you will take more pains for the present and thus i commit you to god your friend henry jernigan to my very friend master carden queen mary's court at this season was the resort of men whose undying names fill the history of that stirring century whose renown either for good or evil is familiar in memory as household words there met together in the palace halls of st james or whitehall the ministers and the victims of philip the second's long career of vigorous tyranny while they were yet in early manhood just starting for their devious course of life there appeared in all the grace of manly beauty alva the terrific whose fine person disguised a disposition of demoniac cruelty afterwards exercised on the unfortunate protestants of the low countries by his side was the magnificent fleming count egmont and his fellow patriot count horn afterwards the resisters and victims of the cruelties and despotism with which philip and alva desolated the protestant cities of flanders there might be seen then a youthful gallant a contender in tournaments for lady smiles and royal prizes the grandee ruy gomez afterwards the celebrated prime minister of spain and as if to complete the historic group there arrived soon after philibert emmanuel duke of savoy the suitor of elizabeth and the future conqueror of st quentin last and greatest came that illustrious prince of orange who wrested holland from the grasp of philip the second the queen sent her lord privy seal to welcome the princes of savoy and of orange to gravesend and they came through london bridge to whitehall in royal barges and landed at whitehall palace january ninth fifteen fifty five where brilliant festivities were at that moment held all the splendor soon closed in the darkest gloom the queen's health had been sinking since november set in yet inspired by her elusive hopes of offspring she kept up her spirits with more than usual energy she was carried to her throne in the house of lords january sixteenth for the purpose of dissolving parliament when she went through the ceremony of sceptering those demoniac acts passed by her third parliament which let loose the fiends of persecution over her country a singular act was likewise passed 
declaring it treason to pray publicly for her death, which it seems was done in some meetings of Protestants. But a clause was added, probably by her desire, that, if penitence was expressed, the parties were only to be obnoxious to minor punishment, awarded by their judge. The two houses had joined in a petition to Philip, requesting that if it should happen to the queen otherwise than well in her travail, he would take upon him the government of the realm, during the minority of her child, with its guardianship. Lord Paget had raised an objection to this measure, but the friends of Philip declared, he had protested on his honor, that he would resign the government when his child came of age. Ay, replied Paget, but should he not, who is to sue the bond? A witticism taken extremely ill by the king and queen, but the act was passed, notwithstanding Lord Paget's opposition, and it certainly threw great power into the hands of Philip, during the queen's long illness. Her hope of bringing offspring was utterly delusive, the increase of her figure was but symptomatic of dropsy, attended by a complication of the most dreadful disorders, which can afflict the female frame, under which every faculty of her mind and body sunk, for many months. At this time commenced that horrible persecution of the Protestants, which has stained her name to all futurity. But if eternal obloquy was incurred by the half-dead queen, what is the due of the parliaments which legalize the acts of cruelty committed in her name? Shall we call the House of Lords bigoted, when its majority, which legalized this wickedness, were composed of the same individuals who had planted, very recently, the Protestant Church of England? Surely not, for the name implies honest, though wrong-headed, attachment to one religion. Shall we suppose that the land lay groaning under the iron sway of a standing army, or that the Spanish bridegroom had introduced foreign forces? but reference to facts will prove, that even Philip's household servants were sent back with his fleet, and a few valets, fools and fiddlers, belonging to the grandees, his bridesmen, were all the forces permitted to land, no very formidable band to Englishmen. The queen had kept her word rigorously, when she asserted, that no alteration should be made in religion, without universal consent, Three times in two years had she sent the House of Commons back to their constituents, although they were most compliant in every measure relative to her religion. If she had bribed one parliament, why did she not keep it sitting during her short reign? If her parliaments had been honest as herself, her reign would have been the pride of her country instead of its reproach, because if they had done their duty in guarding their fellow creatures from bloody penal laws regarding religion, the queen, by her first regal act, in restoring the ancient free constitution of the great Plantagenets, had put it out of the power of her government, to take furtive vengeance on any individual who opposed it. She had exerted all the energy of her great eloquence, to impress on the minds of her judges, that they were to sit, as indifferent umpires between herself and her people. She had no standing army to awe parliaments, no rich civil list, to bribe them. By restoring the great estates of the Howard, the Percy, and many other victims of Henry the Eighth and Edward the Sixth Regency, by giving back the revenues of the plundered bishoprics, and the church lands, possessed by the crown, she had reduced herself to poverty, as complete as the most enthusiastic lover of freedom could desire. But her personal expenditure was extremely economical, and she successfully struggled with poverty, till her husband involved England in a French war. 
the fact of whether the torpid and half-dead queen was the instigator of a persecution the memory of which curdles the blood with horror at this distance of time is a question of less moral import at the present day than a clear analyzation of the evil with which selfish interests had infected the legislative powers of our country it was in vain that mary almost abstained from creation of peers and restored the ancient custom of annual parliaments the majority of the persons composing the houses of peers and commons were dishonest indifferent to all religions and willing to establish the most opposing rituals so that they might retain their grasp on the accursed thing with which their very souls were corrupted for corrupted they were though not by the unfortunate queen the church lands with which henry the eighth had bribed his aristocracy titled and untitled into cooperation with his enormities both personal and political had induced national depravity the leaders of the marian persecution gardiner and bonner were of the apostate class of persecutors flesh bred in murder they had belonged to the government of henry the eighth which sent the zealous roman catholic and the pious protestant to the same stake for the sake of worldly advantage either for ambition or power gardiner and bonner had for twenty years promoted the burning or quartering of the advocates of the papal supremacy they now turned with the tide and burnt with the same degree of conscientiousness the opposers of papal supremacy the persecution appears to have been greatly aggravated by the caprice or the private vengeance of these prelates for a great legalist of our time who paid unprejudiced attention to the facts has thus summed up the case of fourteen bishoprics the catholic prelates used their influence so successfully as altogether to prevent bloodshed in nine and to reduce it within limits in the remaining five bonner whom all generations shall call bloody raged so furiously in the diocese of london as to be charged with burning half the martyrs in the kingdom cardinal pole the queen's relative and familiar friend declined all interference with these horrible executions he considered his vocation was the reformation of manners he used to blame gardiner for his reliance on the arm of flesh and was known to rescue from bonner's crowded piles of martyrs the inhabitants of his own district it is more probable that the queen's private opinion lent to her cousin who had retained the religion she loved unchanged than to gardiner who had been its persecutor but gardiner was armed with the legislative powers of the kingdom unworthy as its time-serving legislators were to exercise them yet all ought not to be included in one sweeping censure a noble minority of good men disgusted at the detestable penal laws which lighted the torturing fires for the protestants seceded bodily from the house of commons after vainly opposing them this glorious band for the honour of human nature was composed of catholics as well as protestants it was headed by the great legalist sergeant plowden a catholic so firm as to refuse the chancellorship when persuaded to take it by queen elizabeth because he would not change his religion this succession is the first indication of a principle of merciful toleration to be found among any legislators in england few were the numbers of these good men and long it was before their principles gained ground for truly the world had not made sufficient advance in christian civilization at that time to recognize any virtue in religious toleration end of section twenty four